Though I'm an employee of Ronald Blue Trust, Talking Money represents my individual views and not those of my employer or any sponsor of the program. During the program, I may discuss market trends as well as specific financial planning techniques and investment ideas. These discussions are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations to any individual or organization. Work with your attorney or accounting or investment professional for specific individual advice and services. Any securities or investment products discussed on Talking Money are not insured by the FDIC, are not a deposit or other obligation of or guaranteed by any bank, and are subject to investment risks, including possible loss of principal amount invested. Good morning and welcome to Talking Money. This is Certified Financial Planner Professional Mike Miller, your host for today. So glad you're with us. If you happen to be new to Talking Money, or maybe you're listening to this for the first time on the podcast, you want to send a question, and those questions can be sent to Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. Get some questions nearly every week. We'd love to get your questions. We want this to be an educational, informative program. This is not a sales program. So for those of you who are new listeners or fairly new listeners, I'd like to remind folks we don't sell anything. I like to say talking money is the answers you need without the sales pitch. And so we're not going to give you a sales pitch today. Sure, we, we have clients that come in for us uh, to see us here at Ronald Blue Trust, and we uh, love to speak with people who we feel like we can help. But joining me in, this, in the Ronald Blue Trust studio, remote studio today, Eddie Holland. He's been on the program many times, and so welcome, Eddie, CPA, CFP. CKA, which is a certified kingdom advisor, as well as soon-to-be personal financial specialist, so as he gets the paperwork done. So welcome again, Eddie. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. And it's always a pleasure to have you, and we've got uh, a lot of good content here today. And so whenever I'm talking Social Security or taxes, I'd like to grab Eddie. I ran into an article. It's been a year or so since I saw it. I set it aside, and I said, you know, I want to talk about this sometime, because I think it really does happen that people... Uh, think about the old rules on, on many tax law changes, and it just sticks in your head. So the last time we had a major tax law change on the sale of your personal residence, hard to believe when I was reading the article, 1997. Wow. Well, I purchased my last house, well, my second house, because I don't like to move, so <laughs> my, my current house back in 99. So I'm all, uh, it's it's um, a long time, <laughs> so it's, I'm, I'm real close to that 97 number. But you'll ask people questions about that, or, or I've had, when I, when I taught workshops at Millican and Cryovac and some of those places, I would ask the audience uh, when we were talking about estate planning. I said, well, how much money can you leave to someone with uh, a surviving spouse, uh, uh, someone like that, with, um, without any estate tax problems? And I'd always get the old 600,000, 650,000 numbers, and and for years it was it was still that way. And now that we're up to you know 23 plus million, uh, I'm sure I'd still get the same. Quite people still think it's 600,000 or a million two or five. The old was it five six million whatever it got yeah, to five and a half or six five yeah. and a half six. Yeah, when it got to there, we'd still get that number because it's just hard to keep up with all those tax law changes. You know, Eddie and I, we both had people ask us that question. So isn't it, you know, you do the same thing. You look at these numbers all the time, and it's, isn't it the same thing? Doesn't it get boring? So, well, if they didn't change the tax laws, <laughs> it might be. But it keeps us hopping, doesn't it, Eddie? It does, absolutely. It keeps us on our toes for sure. So the old rules would say, I don't have to pay taxes on this as long as the home that I'm going to buy is more expensive than the home that, I, that I'm sold. 
And if I'm over 55, 55 or over, and my gain, and I didn't do that, as long as my gain wasn't more than 125,000, I'm still okay. Well, that's all, all changed, and it's been changed for quite a while, but it's still very, very confusing for folks to know um, how this works and how often they can sell a home and still not have to worry about the the taxes in that. So, I don't know, go ahead and give us a few points on that, Eddie, if you want to, or yeah, I'll absolutely. chime in here. Sure. So you're exactly right, Mike. Uh, the, the, the standard laws are pretty straightforward. It's when you get into some of the nuances and the exceptions where a lot of the confusion lies. So the general rule is if you're an individual, you have an exclusion of $250,000 that you can use to offset any gain from the sale of your principal residence. Now, there's certain criteria that you have to hit, and that 250000 is per individual. So if you're married filing joint, that's 250 each or $500,000 exclusion. What that means is you take the basis of your home, and I know we'll talk about that in a little bit, what actually in, uh, what encompasses basis, but you take your basis and you subtract that from the sale proceeds of your house. So using easy math, you sell your home for 500000 You bought it, let's say, 20 years ago for 250000 You're married. So you've got up to 500000 that you can offset from that gain. So in that example, we would have 250000 of gain, but you have a $500,000 amount that you can offset. So you owe no income tax on that primary sale, uh, primary residence sale. Yeah, I'd like to make sure we always remind folks, because it's very confusing for people. It happens all the time. We're talking about just the gain. So I know people think all the time, oh, I paid $300,000 for my house, then, then uh, that i got to worry about it because it's a $50,000 gain. No, no, no. That's part of your basis, like Eddie said. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But we're only talking about the gain in your home. So how much did the price of that home, the value of that home, go up since you bought it? And that's the part that would be included to cover this two hundred fifty or 500000 That is correct, right? yes. Now, there's certain criteria that you have to meet in order to essentially earn that exclusion. The home must be owned, and it has to be used as your primary residence for two out of the last five years. So let me repeat that. You must own the home, and you must have used it as your primary residence two out of the last five years. If you don't meet both of those criteria, then you don't get the amount of the exclusion. Yeah, and, and, and there's we've had a lot of conversations with folks to try to figure out, now how can we make sure we qualify this, that I've lived in there for two years, and I've had other people who said, oh, yeah, we, we, we lived in there for two years, and they forgot that it, they, they, maybe they rented it for another few years after they left, mm-hmm. and now it's been past the five years, and it doesn't qualify anymore. They don't realize that it, uh, that it did that. All right, we're going to continue this conversation about the, the basis and the sale of personal residence because I want to make sure everybody understands this uh, very thoroughly. And, of course, you can always go back to TalkingMoneyRadio.com so that you can rehash it as many times as you want until it really sinks in. Or just uh, give us a call. Send me an email at Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. We'll be back with more of Talking Money in just a minute. This is Certified Financial Planner Professional Mike Miller, your host for Talking Money. I am pleased to have Ronald Blue Trust sponsor Talking Money to help educate listeners about financial planning so you have the information needed to help you make more informed and hopefully better decisions. When a Ronald Blue Trust advisor meets with prospective clients, their goal is to determine if any of our services are a good fit for them. They don't sell any products like annuities or life insurance and as a fiduciary work to serve your best interest. 
Perhaps you just need a financial physical from the Everyday Steward Division without any ongoing monitoring, or you're about to retire and need to work with the Private Wealth Division to map out a financial path and then help implement and continuously monitor that plan. Ronald Blue Trust Advisors act like your quarterback, coordinating the advice you receive from your accountant, your state attorney, life insurance agent, and in some instances, even your investment advisor. You can learn more about Ronald Blue Trust at ronblue.com or 1-800-588-7526. That's 1-800-588-7526. Now back to Talking Money. And welcome back to Talking Money. This is Certified Financial Planner Professional Mike Miller. So glad you're joining us today. If you are listening on a podcast or want to listen to podcasts, you go to TalkingMoneyRadio.com and you can get a lot of uh, good information from that site and listen to it on iTunes or wherever you listen to your particular podcasts. Uh, we're here to help. We want to make sure that you get the information that you need, and that's the way to do it. It's, it's free of charge. I think you get a lot more than you pay for it, and there's no strings attached. You can always sign up for the newsletter if you want, but we're not there to hound you. We're not there to uh, pester you. We're here to give you good quality information, and if you want that kind of information uh, essentially spoon-fed and taken care of for you, then, of course, you can always call us to see if we might be a good fit to help you with your own personal financial planning and investment management, that kind of thing. The number at the office you just heard, 800-588-PLAN or 1-800-588-7526 is the way to reach me at uh, the office so we can have a conversation. We're talking about personal residence and taxes on the sale of a personal residence. And my guest expert today, Eddie Holland, who's CPA, uh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Kingdom Advisor, and soon to be Personal Financial Specialist. And uh, just to let folks know that the team that we have here in the upstate with Ronald Blue Trust, as well as the team nationwide, is highly qualified with a lot of great experience and information, and we're here to try to help. So, Eddie, uh, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the amount that you can gain, you can exclude from the gain. The 250000 or 500000 if you're married, filing jointly. And, and that, as a reminder, that's for the gain. That's not the sale price of your house. That's the actual gain of your house. So, uh, and you said you're talking about every two years. So you have to live in it for two years of the last five. So it could have been all the way back to 2017 or 16 that you lived in it. Correct. does and not have to be the two most recent years. Right. It just has to be two out of the last five years. So if you sold a, bought a, had a house someplace else, and and didn't sell it, or maybe you hadn't had a hard time selling it in the area that you were in. Uh, but let's say you sold the house, you had the house, and you moved out here, and you and you're having a hard time selling it. And it's been a couple of years since you since you left, so you're still within the five year rule. But now you've got one year left, so you need to keep that in mind when you're thinking about even how you're pricing the old house. That maybe you need to reduce that price to make sure it sells, so that you don't have to pay taxes. Assume you have that gain. You don't have to pay taxes on that gain. It certainly has to be part of your calculation or your conversation. That's a great point, Mike. Absolutely. And hopefully your real estate agent is aware of that, can speak into possibly reducing the house a little bit so that you're avoiding some capital gains. So that's a great point. And my guess is most of them don't think to ask you that. So yes, it's that's just, sad but true. Yeah, it's just good to know those kind of things. So um, what happens if the, the gain is uh, – well, let's say first – let's say you, you, you receive it as a gift. Mm-hmm. So uh, your parents, they're, they give you the house for whatever reason. Maybe they're trying to get it out of their estate so that they may qualify for Medicaid, nursing home, or whatever they're doing. And that's a whole different discussion we've had before. But um, let's say they do that and they give it to you. 
Um, so what's that? How's that going to affect you being able to sell it? Yeah, and that's actually something that's sadly uh, all too common. Mm-hmm. A lot of people fall in love with one idea of Medicaid planning, and they don't understand the ramifications or the consequences to that. And so, in the case that you just described, uh, parents gift uh, a house to a child or maybe multiple children. Well, the children receive that gift and they assume the cost basis of the parent. So let's say that the parent had bought this house 30 years ago for $150,000. let us say it's now worth half a million dollars. Yeah, right. Well, the kid, the child now inherits that or receives that as a gift, and then they're assumed to have only paid 150000 They right. don't get the step up to the current market value. They got a $350,000 gain, or would you say it was yeah, worth right, $500,000 gain sitting there waiting, capital gains, but still. Correct. Yeah. So let's say that the parents end up passing away. Normally, if it would have gone through probate, they, the child would have received a step up, but that didn't happen because the child actually owned the house. The parents were just living in it. Parents pass away. At that point, the child could either sell it and, to your point, recognize $350,000 of gain, or he or she could move into the house right. for two years, and then they would and be keep able their to other house. keep they their, keep other, their house. other house. Correct. Just yeah. move in, make it their primary residence for two years. And then they would be able to sell the house, recognize gain, but they would be able to offset some of that gain based on their exclusion. So if they're, right. if they're um, single, they would take $250,000. That would be their exclusion. So instead of a $350,000 gain, live in it two years, earn the $250,000 exclusion. So now they're only paying $100,000 of gain. Now, let's say that they're married. Say that they and their spouse move in. The requirement of ownership does not have to be joint ownership. So because, let's say in this case, the wife inherits it or receives it as a gift, she and her husband move in. Even though the husband never technically owned the house, it was gifted to the wife from her parents. The husband can use his $250,000 exclusion. The wife can use her $250,000 exclusion. So they're able to offset all of the capital gains by living in that house to out of the, the but, both of, but both, both of them have to live there. Both of them otherwise, have to live, yeah. correct. Otherwise, it goes back to the 250. Yes, so, correct. yeah, they can live there and, and claim that. So, yes. uh, you may or may not want to move into your parents' house, uh, but you got to think about that. And you may or may not want to sell your house. It could be you, you could sell your house and then live in your, your parents' house for two years. You could sell your house as long as you lived in it for two years. You got the exclusion. Yep. Live in your parents' house for two years. You get another exclusion. Yes. So you can do that every two years for the rest of your life. Correct. Yeah. The, 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 the exclusion the applies every two years. So in that case, in your example, they could sell their primary residence, exclude up to $500,000, and then potentially move into the parents' house, live in it two years. And then after that two-year period, if they wanted to move somewhere else, they could potentially buy another house, live in it two years, and continue that game. Now, I think they say most people, on average, move every seven years. So, obviously, if, if they're jumping around every two years. But at least they are taking advantage of that uh, primary, primary residence exclusion, which, just so everybody's clear, the ownership criteria is only one of the spouses. It doesn't have to be jointly owned, but the ownership has to be jointly um, you know, I'm sorry, the the, um, the attendance, the living there. Residence. Residence, yes. Making it your personal residence. You have to be living in the home together for each of you to get the $250,000 of So exclusion. be nice to each other. Make sure, yeah, you've got to make sure. it work at least two years. <laughs> at least do all that. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's uh, interesting because, uh, and, and we've had this question multiple times. I know we have, Eddie. 
about, oh, so, so what do I have to do to make sure that I can qualify that as my personal residence? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that try to sneak around that rule. They still live in their current home, but they change their voting record. They change their driver's license. They change all the things, the tax return. Yeah. If they do all those things, then it's going to be hard for the IRS to find out that they're not really living there. But you need to do all those things to make sure that it qualifies. Yeah, I would say if this is certainly a gray area in tax planning. They generally say you want to make it obvious that you're living there, that that's your primary residence. Mm-hmm. And so to your point, if you change your voting record address, if you change your tax return address, if you change some of the other uh, core mailings that you normally receive, tax documents and those types of things. Your car title. You car know, title. Get all that stuff. Correct. Yeah. And that's going to make it. Now, what I have heard is that some people have actually tried to get around that and used a P.O. box. So it makes themselves uh-huh. less traceable. Uh-huh. But I think still the, the point is that that needs to be the place of your residence where you're there at least over half the time. And so we have, uh, we've run into some situations with some clients where they have a lake house and they have a personal residence as mm-hmm. well. And mm-hmm. they've considered this as well. They've said, hey, this lake house is really appreciated depending on where it is, Hartwell, Kiwi, um, one of those places where the real estate market has really exploded and there's been a good bit of appreciation. Right. Especially if this has been a family a house that's been passed down maybe to a second generation. And so even though they got the step up in basis, the appreciation potentially has been pretty significant. So what they've actually planned to do is they've planned to move into that house for a period of time so that they can live there two years. Now, in their case, they might leave their their mailing address as their primary residence because they don't want to have to go through the hassle of, of changing their mailing address. But I will say it gets a little murky when you have multiple residents and you've got mm-hmm. different mailing addresses for different documents. I think you leave yourself open to potentially some IRS scrutiny there. Yeah, well, the safest thing to do is just do it honestly. That's you right. Actually move there because yes. we're not going to even hint that you should be trying to get around it some way. Absolutely. If you want it to be your personal residence, just move in, make your personal residence. Then you don't have to, to second guess. You don't have to keep looking over your shoulder as it were to see if the IRS is, is going to catch me and get past the statute of limitations. Okay, I made it three years, so I'm okay. Although for fraud, <laughs> they thought fraud, they can go longer than that. Right. Uh, so it's just it's just good just to be honest about it. And just Couldn't agree more. And make it. And, and so you mentioned step up basis a couple of times. I always like to make sure we qualify our statements. So explain what the step up in basis is. So what step up in basis means is if you inherit a property from uh, a loved one or doesn't necessarily have to be a loved one, if that asset goes through probate, then it receives what's called a step up in basis, meaning the fair market value at that person's date of death is becomes your basis when you inherit that property. You say probate, but it could go through living trust too. Through living trust, correct. To be a probate, correct. Yeah. Yes, yes. Anything that actually goes through the probate process, whether it goes outside of probate through a living trust or through the actual probate process right. itself. As long, as, I guess I should use the word someone's estate. As long as it goes through that person's estate, estate yeah. whether it's through the living trust or probate, then the benefit is that it receives a step up in basis. So, in the example we used earlier, five hundred thousand dollar house gifted to a child when it was $150,000 a basis, the gift, you you receive the the original basis. Mm -hmm. If it goes through the estate, you receive a step-up in basis. So at that point, that child would have a $500,000 basis, Whereas if it was gifted, they would only receive a hundred fifty thousand dollars basis. Yeah, yeah, good, good point. So we'll we'll talk more about this when we get back. But of course, if you've got any questions about this or any other subject we talk about today, you can always reach out to your own financial advisor, your CPA, your tax attorney. 
uh, Eddie and I both believe, though, it's very important to work with an advisor who shares your values and your biblical worldviews. If you want more information about that, just give me a call, Mike Miller, at 800-588-PLAN. That's 800-588-7526. Or you can send an email to Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. We'll be right back. Ronald Blue Trust is pleased to sponsor Talking Money. Ronald Blue Trust is a company with a vision to see individuals and families practicing biblical stewardship and experiencing freedom from economic fear, bondage, and conflict. They want their clients and their families to enjoy debt-free living, free to answer the call to ministry or whatever their passion is, feeling at peace with their investments and the way they are being professionally managed to help accomplish their financial objectives so they can focus on other aspects of their lives and help clients make wise financial decisions, live generously, and leave a lasting legacy. As a trust company, Ronald Blue Trust Advisors come alongside the next generation to help transfer your values and help you leave your lasting legacy. If you're a business owner, the Business Consulting Division can help you define your company's culture and, very importantly, then help convey that culture to the next generation of leaders in your company. Find out more about Ronald Blue Trust at ronblue.com or one 800 588-7526. That's 1-800-588-7526. Now back to Talking Money. Good morning. Welcome back to Talking Money. So Talking Money is gives you the answers you need without the sales pitch. I like to remind folks of that pretty much any time I can because there's so many people out there with Indigen just trying to sell you stuff. We're not doing that today. But if you want to ask a question... And we can pick up on a future broadcast. Send your question to Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. Or you can always call and leave a question at our toll-free number, 800-588-PLAN. That's 800-588-7526. And we'd be glad to answer those questions. Or if you just want to have a discussion about whether or not we can help you personally with your retirement planning, tax planning, estate planning, trust we can do all those kind of things, and we would love to have that conversation with you. Eddie and I, either one, would, would love to have that conversation. And believe me, we're going to be as careful trying to find out if we think we're a good fit as you should be, trying to find out if we're a good fit for you. Today, though, we're talking about the sale of personal residence. Eddie Holland is my guest. He's a CPA and a certified financial planner, a certified kingdom advisor, and we've been working together for... What year did you come? 20... 2013, 13. beginning of 2013. I was thinking, so over seven years we've been working together, and it's been a, um, a great teamwork. Uh, love working with Eddie. His clients love it even more, so we, we like that. So we're talking about the exclusions, and we talked about all that before the break. So now we've got to talk about the, the basis, and, and some people would say, well, why do I need to even track my basis anymore because that rule that was changed all the way back in 1997 and now that I can exclude up to 500,000 of gain if I'm married filing jointly I mean how often I mean granted that's going to cover most people listening today you're not going to have more than a $500,000 gain uh, but there are times when when you do and you don't know if you might or your situation might change and now you're single and you're your your exclusion all of a sudden dropped from 500 to 250. But of course, if you're single and you inherited the house from a spouse, you get some partial step up in basis anyway. Um, but what are some things we need to, to consider when you're looking at um, the the basis or calculating what what could be included to increase that basis? That's yeah. what people want to know. And you're exactly right, Mike. And we talked the previous segment about situations where there you may 
have a house that is very valuable from a dollar standpoint, but may have low basis if that uh, house was gifted to someone for Medicaid planning or whatever. So basis really matters, and that's where it gets really complex because if, let's say, you inherited a house and it goes through that person's estate, well, you get the step-up in basis, which we covered last segment. But if it was gifted, you're going to have to go all the way back to when your parents or whoever it was that gifted you the property purchased the property. There's going to be some things that can be added or included in basis and some things that have to be subtracted from basis. And so certainly not going to be an exhaustive list, but just a couple of things that have to be considered. Anything that you've actually done to the house that's improved or added to the house. So if you've added an addition, if you've added another bedroom, a bathroom, maybe you've added a two-car garage, those types of things are going to be additions to the house. That's going to be added to your basis. So if yeah. you bought the house for 150 and you put a $30,000 garage or whatever, you add that to the basis, so your basis is now $180,000. The general rule of thumb I heard was if the improvement was had a useful life of more than one year, mm-hmm. then probably it's something you can add to the basis. Correct. That's right. And sadly, things like landscaping, uh, paint, those things don't actually add. They might add value to the house, but they don't add or improve the house from a longevity standpoint. So you have to be very sensitive to what's considered to be an addition to basis and what's actually just considered to be maintenance on the house. Things that potentially could be an addition, let's say that you had an HOA where you had to get sidewalks added to your property. You came out of pocket for that. That's potentially an addition to basis that you could add. Um, anything that you've actually had to pay, let's say that you bought the house and there were closing costs associated with that, some of those closing costs can be added to the basis. But there's also things that you have to understand that can reduce the basis. And this is something that... We don't I mean, want to talk about that. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, probably don't. Uh, but this is actually one thing that I ran into uh, many years ago when I was practicing in, in a, a CPA firm. There's a, this, this concept called home office deduction. Uh-huh. So let's say that someone actually uses part of their home for a home office. Mm-hmm. The rules changed in 2013. So the IRS came out and they simplified things. They came out with what's known as the simplified home office deduction or the simplified home office expense. But you always have to be suspicious when the government says simplified. Exactly. Anything. And, yeah. and I will give them credit. It actually is simple <laughs> in the calculation. You take the square footage of your house and you multiply it by a certain dollar amount, which I think is $5. And so whatever that amount is, so if it's 300 square feet, you multiply 300 times $5, and that's the expense that you get to write off as a home office deduction. But some people actually have legitimate home offices, and they have uh, quite a bit of expenses associated with that. So you can take what's called the actual home office expense. And so what you do is you take a pro rata portion of all the expenses included in your home, interest, utilities, those types of things, and whatever percentage of your home office is, I'm sorry, whatever percentage of your house is your home office. So if it's 10 or 15 or 20 percent, you can take actual expenses for that. Right. There's something embedded in that that a lot of people don't know. It's actually called depreciation. So you're required to depreciate that portion of your home every year on your tax return if you take the actual expenses. The simplified home office deduction was uh, a response by the IRS to try to take that requirement off the table for people that don't want to have to depreciate their house. Mm -hmm. But if you're taking actual expenses or you've lived in a house where the home office has been prior to 2013 before the simplified method actually came into existence, Even if you didn't depreciate your home, technically you were required to. So when you go and try to sell your house at a later point, 
even if it's under the exclusion amount. So let's say it's a $500,000 house. You bought it for $250,000. You've got the $250,000 exclusion per person if you're married filing joint. So you've got up to $500,000 that you can exclude. But if you depreciated, say, $10,000 of that home office over the years, even though the full gain of two hundred and fifty is less than the exclusion, you have to go in and pull out that depreciation amount and actually recapture that on your income tax. Now, hopefully, your CPA or your tax preparer is well aware of that, that rule, and can guide you through that. And obviously, in, in typical IRS standard, it's a pretty uh, esoteric type of, yeah. of rule. But it's very important to understand that if you do have a home office, don't just blindly think that you can exclude something without at least yeah. uncovering whether you needed to depreciate yeah. some of your property. Yeah, I don't think too many people have the office in their home, but they, they are getting to be more that way because they now they're working at home. So more people than, than usual would have that apply to them if they try to take that on the taxes. And you remember that because this may be the first year that you did that. So when you start to file your taxes next year, you certainly need to make sure your tax preparer, your tax preparer is a, aware of all that to make That's sure right. it's calculated correctly. And you're going to have the option, like I said, of using the simplified home office deduction or the actual. And so keep in mind, if you use the actual, that's going to trigger some depreciation. So that'll be something that you have to consider. So some of the things that, and this is doing the research, because so many tax rules, you, you say, oh, yeah, I forgot that was in there when you start reading again. But some of the examples they give on improvements would be to uh, paving a driveway, uh, replacing an entire roof, which would be something you could add to, to basis. Installing central air conditioning, that doesn't mean you repaired your central air conditioning, but you actually installed it. Things like that that are major things that are going to improve that house for longer than a year. It's got a useful life of longer than a year are things that you can add to that basis, but you need to keep records. You need to yes. keep receipts. If you get audited, the IRS is not going to say, oh, yeah, I think I paid so much for it. Okay, yeah, we'll let that slide. They know you paid something for it, but if you want to get the actual numbers, Keep your records. And it's preferred that you have an invoice and not just some handwritten scribble on a notepad <laughs> that says, I bought this or paid for this uh, 15 years ago. You prefer invoices. Yeah. So like you said earlier, repairs don't count. Repainting your house inside or out. Fixing the gutters, fixing the floors, replacing broken windows. That that just doesn't uh, cut it when you're uh, trying to figure out what your basis is for those. So it's just uh, the repairs just uh, are not not part of the deal when you get it. So and and. There are some even, and I'm not going to, we're not going to go into great detail about this, but there are even some special rules. If you bought your house, uh, pre-97 or you sold a house pre-97 and you still own the house that you bought back then and you deferred the gain from the old house to the new house, you got to make sure you adjust your basis on that gain and reduce your current basis by the gain that you deferred. So uh, some people I'm sure listening have have had a house like I almost hit that uh, going back uh, pre-97 that you sold and you deferred the gain into something else. So I you know how how well the IRS could go back on this, you know who knows how they can find it, but but still there again, do it honestly and you don't have to worry about what's happening. Well, and I'll tell you this too Mike and we can talk about this more in the next segment because I know we're coming up on a break. Yeah. There's quite a few um intricacies in this planning that have to be considered. And so I think you're exactly right. You just don't want to blindly assume or plow into something without there being a little bit of strategy and planning going into it. And that's not just dealing with primary residence. That's life in general. It right. involves finances. Yeah. You want there to be a little bit of method to the madness. Yeah. And it's really where the value, I mean, people, and we've talked to a number of prospects, clients, that you, you when you talk to them, sometimes often prospects, and you talk to them about some things they're doing, you find out that they've been doing some things incorrectly. Maybe they haven't gotten caught yet, but still, 
it's the value you'd like to bring to the table for to our clients is that we're we're going to come up with some some questions that you didn't ask and some answers that you didn't aware of that you weren't aware of and that's where we try to bring that uh, value to the table. All right, when we get back from the break, we're going to talk about the required minimum distribution payback and some of that the changes from the CARES Act that that might apply to some of you and how it might also apply to some some other programs to to some money that you might qualify for. Uh, we'll try to f- see if we can squeeze all that in on the next on the next break. So we'll be back with the last segment of Talking Money in just a couple of minutes. This is Certified Financial Planner Professional Mike Miller, your host for Talking Money. I am pleased to have Ronald Blue Trust as the sponsor of Talking Money. As a trust company with clients in all 50 states, Ronald Blue Trust can serve as trustee, backup trustee, or even personal representative, what we used to call the executor or executrix. This can be a valuable service, especially if you'd like to pass on your values and not just your valuables to your heirs. Your heirs will probably have one of two perspectives. Either they will say something like, what am I going to inherit? Which is usually the common perspective. Or they will ask, what is going to be entrusted to me? What talents will I be responsible to manage? Tim Kimmel, Director of Family Matters, said it well. Quote, you can't leave character to your trust account. You can't write your values into the will. You can't bank traits like courage, honesty, and compassion in a safe deposit box. What we need is a plan, a long-term strategy to convey our convictions to the next generation, unquote. Estate and trust planning are about much more than saving taxes or simply making sure your assets get transferred efficiently to your children. You can find out more about Ronald Blue Trust at ronblue.com or one 800 588 plan. That's 1-800-588-7526. Now back to Talking Money. And welcome back to Talking Money. We've got about 10 minutes here left in the program. We want to wrap up some of these conversations we're having about selling your personal residence. So Eddie Holland from one of my colleagues at the office as a CPA and certified financial planner, certified kingdom advisor, is joining me today on the microphone as he has multiple times over the years to talk about this. To submit a question, submit that question to Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. Love to hear from you. Love to answer listeners' questions because we think it's important to for you to ask your question to someone who does not have a hidden agenda, is not trying to sell you anything and can give you as objective an opinion as possible. And from a pool of experts, not just me, but I've got access to a lot of great talent that I can access as I need to and get you those answers. And initially, of course, it's free of charge, so it's hard to beat that. So we're talking about the exclusions on personal residence. Uh, Eddie, anything else that we may have missed that you want to wrap up on before we head to the next topic? Yeah, just one last thing, Mike. We talked uh, earlier in the program that the $250,000 exclusion is per person. So if you actually are married, then that's $250,000 per person. You don't both have to own the home, but you both have to use the home two out of the last five years. We've had a situation um, arise multiple times in the past where a spouse has passed away. So husband and wife married. Let's say husband passes away. question then is if wife sells it after husband passes away, does she only uh, is she only allowed to use her two hundred fifty thousand dollars exclusion, or can she use her deceased husband's? The answer is, as long as she sells the house within two years of her husband's date of death, 
then she's able to allow she's able to use his exclusion and hers. So she'd be able okay. to exclude up to five hundred thousand dollars of, of gain from the sale of that personal residence. Yeah, that's great. So if you're confused and if you're not sure what how all of this applies to your situation, once again, just send your question, Mike at talkingmoneyradio.com and, and if I don't know the answer, I'll grab Eddie and he can give it. If he doesn't know the answer, we'll find somebody else that does or we'll look it up for you. But one way or the other, we want to answer your questions and give you that sounding board that everyone needs uh, when you want to get information and um, and you know, save you the time to look it up. We probably already looked it up, so it's easier for us to answer that question than it is for you to spend an hour or two trying to figure it out, which is getting to be more and more my mantra the older I get. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things I could do on my on my own. I could probably figure that out if I took enough time to do it. But well, if I can buy, I can pay somebody else to do that for me, and it saves me that half day of figuring it out. I think that's a that's a good use of my money. <laughs> it saves me some time. So I think you probably agree with that. Maybe you're too young to agree with that, Eddie. No, there's a lot that I agree with. That <laughs> delegation is a beautiful thing. Yeah. But there's some things I still love doing myself. I still love doing all my own yard work. Yeah, I could have somebody else do that. But but um, I like doing it, enjoy doing it. It looks good, so I'm going to keep doing it. But not the office. Somebody else can do it at the office. <laughs> okay, so uh, for the time we have left, uh, I know we've had some information come out here recently on the required minimum distribution. We've talked about the, the payback. We've had um, um, Alan Cox on the program from our national office talking about the, the CARE Act. And you can go back into the archives on TalkingMoneyRadio.com, and you can hear the, the explanation of the CARE Act. You can go back a little further, hear the explanation on the SECURE Act. Uh, just very little goes on uh, in the government these days. We've got all kind of stuff going on. But you can hear full, detailed explanations. But, um, Eddie, you, you had um, run into some information this week I think is valuable for people to know that how they may be able to, to tweak their income to, to qualify for some stimulus uh, based on this year's income. Absolutely, Mike. And so you uh, addressed it or alluded to it earlier. The required minimum distribution has been waived this year. So anybody that was subject to either an IRA or an inherited IRA required minimum distribution, that's been waived. And people still don't know that, haven't heard that. Yeah, you know, it's so crazy It's maybe the first time you've heard that. If, you, if your financial advisor has not told you that, shame on them. Yeah, shame on him. Yeah. Give us a call. All right. The problem was they announced the required minimum distribution being waived in March. So there were people that took required minimum distributions right. in January or February. Normally, under normal circumstances, there's a 60-day window where you can roll the money back into that plan or into that account and not pay income tax. Well, the people that took the distribution out in early January, that 60-day window had expired. Yeah, gone, right. So the Congress and IRS came out, and they said, we're going to give everybody a reprieve. We're going to allow you to redeposit the money that you've taken out from a required minimum distribution, and as long as you get that money back in by August 31st, of this year, so August 31st, 2020. About six about, weeks from now. Yeah, about 45 days from now, exactly. <laughs> then your that distribution will will be as if it never happened. So for you golfers out there, it's like a mulligan. It's a do-over. <laughs> you get to actually redeposit the money back into the 401k IRA, whatever it may be, and actually not have to pay uh, any income tax the following year. Well, that has ramifications galore. It could potentially reduce your Medicare Part B or Part D premium. We spent a lot of time in March talking about that, so they can go to TalkingMoneyRadio.com, pull up the programs where we talked about that in March. QCDs, there's potential that you can continue to uh, give those, even if the required minimum distribution has been waived. may create some room for Roth conversions. But what I want to focus on the next couple of minutes is what was uh, actually paid out a little earlier this year, this stimulus check. 
So the stimulus check was based on your most recent tax return, but it was actually a prepayment for the 2020 stimulus. So what that means is they looked, the IRS and Congress looked at your 2018 or 2019 tax return, whichever was the most recent one. So if you had not filed your 2019 yet, it's they looked at 2018. Right. If you had filed your 2019, they looked at that. And if your income fell below certain thresholds, then you would qualify for either a full stimulus, which was $1,200 per person, or a partial stimulus. Obviously, if you had a qualifying child or children, you got an extra $500. Right, right. However... Most people thought, well, that's a 2020 stimulus based on a prior year's tax return. That's incorrect. They prepaid this stimulus or this rebate based on your 2018 or 2019 tax return, but it's for the 2020 year. And then there's going to be what they call a true-up next year. When you file your tax return, they're going to look at your 2020 income, and if it falls below those thresholds, you will qualify for a stimulus. And so some so, people that may not have gotten a stimulus check because their 2019-18 income is too high, they may actually qualify because their 2020 income correct. falls within those limits. And especially yeah. for somebody who has required minimum distributions, 2018-2019, they had RMDs. Well, 2020, that RMD requirement has been waived. And right. so if they forego the required minimum distribution, their income may, be, may be below a threshold, so they may qualify for the stimulus. Now, what happens if your 2020 income is higher than your 2019 or 2018? Say you filed your 2018 right. tax return. Say your 2019 return had not been filed, haven't filed your 2020. Are they going to go back and recoup what they paid you, prepaid you, based right. on your 2018 income tax return? Let's say your income is much higher now. The answer is no. It was based on your 2018. That's now locked in stone. The only thing that could potentially change is if your 2020 tax return reports income below a threshold, and you could qualify for a stimulus even if your 2019 yeah. or 2018 return had higher income. So you can't lose, Correct. but you may win. Correct. And that would be one reason to say uh, now the, the, doing a QCD this year would not affect that because mm -hmm. it's going to go right from your IRA to the qualified charitable distribution. Yes. So that wouldn't affect it, but you don't have to do one this year. That is correct. So um, if you want to delay it to next year, you could do that. And, uh, and we've got one minute left, so yeah. uh, quick comment. Yeah, so we've had some, uh, some people who have liked to give to charities at the end of the year. They want to use the qualified charitable distribution election, satisfy part of their RMD. Well, what they could potentially do, as long as the charity is agreeable to this or they don't need the cash, and I'm right. sure every charity they wants the cash, right. yeah. but what you could do is you could delay until January of next year and give your QCD for what you had planned to do for 2020, you don't have an RMD now, so you don't have to give it via QCD, but the QCD actually offsets the RMD for 2021. Yeah. So you could double up your QCD. So if you're giving ten grand each, you could give $20,000 in 2021, and that offsets your required minimum yeah. distribution. Great information. If you've got more questions for me, Mike Miller, 800-588-PLAN, 800-588-7526, or send me an email to mike at talkingmoneyradio.com. Thanks, Eddie, for joining me today. Thank you, Mike. It was All a right. pleasure. Have a great weekend, everyone.